The Northern Lights put on quite the show. The videos that show up after an active night of lights are stunning, unbelievable. But did you know the auroras have been known to make sounds? Records of people hearing the auroras date back centuries and continue to this day. While scientists previously dismissed these accounts as folklore, in recent years a group from Finland has been working to prove that the Northern Lights do indeed make a sound. Not only that, they say the sound is actually dependent on one particular type of weather condition. I'm meteorologist Emily Gracie, and you are listening to Off the Radar, a production of the National Weather Desk. On the show, we dig deep into topics about weather, climate, the ocean, space, and much more. Our goal is to help you better understand the weather and to love it as much as we do. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Northern Lights seem magical. I've never seen them myself, but it's definitely on my bucket list. Every video we see is accompanied by someone expressing shock and amazement at what they're witnessing. Look how bright the pillars are. Oh my God. What may be even more unbelievable are the stories of people hearing the lights. I was camping on a late autumn night in north central Wisconsin. The northern lights came out and they were spectacular. They were bright pink and white and they pulsated overhead for hours across the sky. You could hear a really clear whoosh as the lights pulsated. First time I'd ever heard that. It was almost like a wave with each push of light. It was like a steady pulse, and it was visually and audibly very clear that they were combined. Many claim to have heard them, but very few have been able to record it. Listen to this recording, though, from Alto University. It was captured in Finland in 2004. That clap you heard, that was it. The Finnish scientists that recorded it claim that there have been very few audio recordings because it's something difficult to pick up on standard equipment. A study reports that a young, healthy human ear is the best instrument for registering the sounds. Its sensitivity and low noise have been really difficult to achieve with technical means. In today's episode, we're going beyond the visual and exploring the audio side of the Aurora Borealis. I'm talking to Dr. Fiona Amory from Emanuel College in Cambridge. She's a science historian that has spent her career researching the topic. She talks about the science behind the auroras and what causes them, as well as the long-standing controversy of whether or not they actually make noise. So sit back, open your ears and your minds to the magical world of auroral sounds. Um, this is really fun. We're used to the auroras being 
a treat for the eyes, but apparently it's a treat for the ears as well. So I want to start by asking you a little bit about your background. Yeah, I'm I'm actually a, a historian and philosopher of science. Um, so I'm very interested in atmospheric sciences, atmospheric physics, but I tend to look at them from a historical point of view um, from the 19th and 20th centuries. So I'm currently a research fellow at Emmanuel College, Cambridge. My um, my PhD was on the Northern Lights and um, well, the Aurora Borealis and Australis. Uh, and I was mostly looking at visual representations, uh, the changing instruments that we use to register the Northern Lights, but also an embodied uh, corporeal understanding of what witnessing them is like. And that's how I came to the topic of rural sound. So let's talk about the auroras. Can you give me a little background for somebody who doesn't know basically how they're caused? We know what they look like, but not everybody knows how that happens. Absolutely. It's um, the energy from the sun, the solar wind is pushing lots of different particles, electrons, positrons uh, towards our atmosphere all the time. And the way that the aurora is caused is that these, uh, primarily the electrons, but there's also some interesting things that happen with the positrons, the electrons, because they're charged, react with the magnetic field that the Earth has. And they're channeled uh, along particular pathways, mostly around the poles, but interestingly, not exactly at the poles, uh, but just following the magnetic compass in an oval shape around uh, that area. And they interact with elements in our atmosphere, with nitrogen and oxygen, um, bumping into those, uh, increasing their energy levels, which then emits photons of light. And that those are the colors that we see. And depending on which element the solar wind is bumping into, that gives us the different colors of the aurora. Okay. And we typically see them in higher latitudes. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. In generally around roughly the Arctic Circle, um, but they can come down much lower uh, and they have done in, in the past in the Carrington event, for example, but, but even more recently, you can see them from Scotland in England some, or in Britain sometimes. Does time of year matter or is it more dependent on the sun's activity? Generally, auroral activity follows the solar cycle, which is an 11-year cycle, um, and we're coming up to a maximum now in 2025 and 2026, so that will be a really good time to see the northern lights, hopefully. But but also in, in autumn and spring tend to be really good times to see the northern lights. Okay, so we are in kind of a, a higher active period right now because I didn't know if it was I'm hearing about it more or seeing more pictures or if it actually was more active. But if, I mean, people are taking pictures in places like Virginia. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. It, it sometimes can be, uh, it can be surprising because sometimes we don't expect the sun to be so active um, in these years leading up to the, the bigger activity. But yeah, we've, I've definitely been hearing more about it lately. So in all of the pictures and everything we've seen online, they're beautiful, there's no doubt. But I, I've never heard of someone talking about the sound that it makes. So can you tell me a little bit about that and how this was first discovered, if it was folklore for so long, and the process that that has gone through? Yeah, that was one of the really exciting parts of my research, finding out about all these different accounts of the sound. You're quite right that it started off as being discovered through folklore, through lived experience. Um, that there was an increase in the volume of accounts of a rural sound 
coming from very different places, coming from northern Canada, coming from the Shetland Islands, coming from Norway and Russia. And it was interesting that all of the accounts seemed to corroborate one another. They were all um, talking about very similar types of sounds, you know, often on the edge of perception, not quite perceptible, but maybe increasing with increased auroral activity and always of this kind of crackling, staticky nature. And because there were so many accounts corroborating each other, that's when it really got the interest of the scientific community. And when did that happen? So that happened around, I've written papers on the first international polar year, which happened in 1882. And that was a period where um, a lot of expeditions to the Arctic were sent out from from Europe, from North America. Um, and there were people that were going to temporarily uh, live in little huts in the Arctic for a year, observe the aurora, do some other measurements as well. And they were listening out for the aurora. They knew that there was this folklore, that it had a sound. They were interacting with people local to the Arctic who were telling them that it had sounds. But unfortunately, there was only one person on one of those expeditions that actually claimed to hear the sounds. Not many people believed him at the time. It was a bit controversial. So then throughout the sort of late 19th and early 20th century, a lot more people became interested in these sounds. And it was in the second international polar year in 1932, when the investigation was much more thorough, um, more people were hearing the sounds. But th then there was still quite a lot of scepticism from the scientific community, even then as well. Yeah. What is, you say like a crackling or popping sound, it seems like that, and that's something that can be mistaken for something else. Yeah, there. I mean, there are beautiful descriptions in the literature talking about the. It sounded like the buzzing of a bee, or the rustling of velvet, or um, yeah, paper shuffling together, and all of those sounds, although they're quite evocative, could be, yeah, something like crunching of snow, or or perhaps you know, people were talking about it could be ice particles and those kind of interacting with the air and the atmosphere, and it, it also occurred to a lot of people that it could be a psychological phenomenon. It could be that you're seeing this beautiful auroral display and it kind of conjures a sound in your mind, whereas it's not necessarily an objective sound that exists. So all of those arguments were certainly being put forward in these periods. It was quite hard to tell what was what was real sound and what was either imaginary or uh, a different cause. Okay, so fast forward to now in the past 20, 30 years. This has been proven, correct? So there is still some debate within the scientific community. There's still uh, a few different ideas. Generally, it's largely accepted that there is a sound that uh, is associated with the Northern Lights, but it's not dis discovered entirely what, how that sound is produced, what triggers the sound, why it should exist. The researchers in, in Finland at the moment who are carrying out sound observations and their theory is that there's an inversion layer in the atmosphere where instead of getting cooler as you ascend, it suddenly gets warmer at about 70 meters above the ground. And their idea is that the, the um, electrical discharge from the aurora that's happening with those electrons we were talking about earlier, they have quite complicated brush discharges that come down to this point at 70 meters above um, the atmosphere. And at that point, they then discharge in people's glasses that they're wearing or even their clothes that can pick up static or trees that are nearby. Um, 
And that's when you get the sound. So the sound is much more close to earth in their, in their view. Um, but again, they, they haven't discovered why the sound is triggered for some auroral displays and, and not for others. So I would guess if they have found it to be more likely during an inversion, there are meteorologists involved in this research as well, because you can forecast an inversion layer. I mean, we do it all the time when we forecast fog. Can you tell me about the different types of scientists that are working on this research? Absolutely. There, there are a lot of meteorologists. There are also uh, geophysicists in northern Norway who are really interested in this. Um, there are there are physicists like the group in uh, Finland. Uh, Unto Leina is the uh, PI working on that project. Um, but there are also a lot of amateur observers who are really interested. It's not just the scientific community. There's it's really valuable to have crowdsourcing practices and to understand what people are experiencing when they're going outside and witnessing the northern lights. So um, there are a lot of different people who are interested in this topic and trying to push forward the research. Yeah, I can imagine it's really important to have that crowdsourcing. I'm curious about how people are recording the sound. There, is there a huge range and some people have their phone and they're just recording to yeah. also maybe some people with very high-end sound equipment? Yes, the group in Finland have um, some precision technology and they're funneling the sound into their recording devices because, like I said, it's quite, um, it can be very quiet and you need to be in a space where there isn't a lot of other sound happening as well. I don't imagine you'd be able to pick it up on a phone recording. I don't know if anybody has tried that. Um, but if you listen to the Finland group's uh, recordings, they they have a really brilliant one where there's a, a sudden clap that they hear. There's kind of a snap um, rather than a low-level buzzing, which which they infer is is also created by the aurora. Yeah, they're able to pick up maybe some different sounds that... You can't necessarily always hear yourself, but you can't necessarily pick up just on a phone. Has anybody done any research on any connection between colors and sound? That's an interesting one. There's There's been a lot of work on the color of the aurora, a um, lot of spectroscopy going on. Um, and there has been some radio imaging as well, uh, which has been really interesting. But I think, in all honesty, the, co the color and the sound have been generally quite separate. Um, especially because the sound has had these connotations of being maybe a little bit to do with mythology, a little bit to do with folklore, not so mainstream uh, science that you might find when we're talking about the colors of the aurora. Um, I heard that you can hear them sometimes even when you can't see them. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, I've heard that too. I mean, I, I generally find from the literature, it looks like the sounds appear when you have a really violent uh, auroral display, one that's moving a lot uh, and really bright colors. Um, but I have also heard that people are able to pick up uh, aurora that are happening on, on radio echoes, or you can even get daytime aurora that you can pick up again on radio echoes. And sometimes people claim that there are sounds associated with those. But again, that's quite difficult to corroborate as well. Yeah, I bet. what is there as we go into these next few years of expected high activity? What are, I'm guessing they're trying to prove for one, what causes this, that it is actually happening. Do you know of any particular research? Um, I certainly know that there are groups in both Norway and Finland, mainly Scandinavian research that's going on trying to you're quite right. Find out the the trigger for these causes. Find out what mag which magnetic patterns they relate to, which uh, kind of other phenomena they might relate to, and also 
uh, there's a lot of research on the shapes of the aurora, their formation, and then their eventual breakdown and the development between those. Everyone really wants to know how the sounds then are, are impacted by these various stages of an auroral life cycle. Yeah, and, and where you can hear them geographically as well is really important around the hemisphere, kind of understanding where they're more uh, apparent or where they're or particular environments that might be uh, inducing the, the sounds. Yeah, I wonder if everybody realizes, too, this is happening on the South Pole, too. There's just not as much land down there, right? So people aren't seeing them and hearing them. Quite right, yeah. It, almost the exact same uh, rural activity will be happening simultaneously in the North and the South. But obviously there are far fewer people to actually witness it and record it down there. So then we have far less information about the Aurora Australis as we do about the Aurora Borealis. Although there are teams at, at Halley Bay, for example, that is one of the British stations down there. Um, and they record the Aurora, but uh, we have more historical data about the Northern Lights. You say the activity is the same. Is, does it reach kind of the same latitudes on the same night? It's usually quite, yeah, synchronous. You get similar sorts of patterns. Um, sometimes, interestingly, they're inverted, uh, as, as maybe you might expect between North and South. But it reaches similar latitudes. Um, it's often similar intensity, similar formations. But but yeah, sometimes there's a, an interesting inversion if you can recognize the patterns in the north and in the south. Interesting. I guess because of the Coriolis effect, because you know is the it? Earth's rotation is going to be the opposite in the southern hemisphere. So for the same reason that hurricanes are going the opposite direction, the auroras are going the opposite direction. Quite right. Yes. But we don't always expect it when we're talking about sort of uh, atmospheric phenomena that are influenced by the space and the space between the sun and our uh, our planet. But um, yes, yeah, it's also affected by the Earth's movement. Very cool. Tell me what you're researching next. Tell me what you're going to write about next. So my, my next project is looking at atmospheric analogues and machines which imitated the atmosphere in the 19th century. So I'm really interested in things like the cloud chamber, which was initially created to imitate how rain was formed, uh, but then was put to a lot of other uses. Um, and there were machines that were put on mountaintops to try and recreate the aurora in its natural habitat. There were Tesla was working in Colorado on machines to, to create lightning in a laboratory. Um, and you have people trying to create uh St. Elmo's fire in in chambers. So I'm really interested in how people have cre recreated the atmosphere in in a very indoor environment, um, and what that tells us about how knowledge was created of the atmosphere in the 19th century. Cool. Well, I can't wait to hear all about that. That's a whole other podcast, Fiona. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. We'll be sure to check back in with Fiona as she continues her research on the auroral sounds. Off the Radar is a production of the National Weather Desk. Make sure you're following the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. That way you'll get new episodes when they publish every Tuesday. If you have a weather nerd in your life or someone that loves the Aurora Borealis, please share this episode with them. We'd also love you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Let us know what you think of the show and give me some ideas for future episodes. Check us out on YouTube where you can see the video version of this interview. It has lots of beautiful Aurora images. There's a link in the description to the recorded sounds of the Auroras. Just search the National Weather Desk. 
This podcast is produced, hosted, and edited by me. Special thanks to Nick Stewart and Marv Danielski for their participation. Also to Jay Mishkin and the rest of the National Weather Desk team. I'm meteorologist Emily Gracie. Make it a great day.